Say hello to the bad guy. The good guy coming in last place. Smell that dope when I pass by. I let my money at a fast pace. Welcome to Say Hello to the Bad Guy. I'm your host, Locke, and I'm very excited to introduce today's guest. I got former Kansas City Intelligence unit detective who's authored three books. He's produced four documentaries. He's the creator of the Kansas City Mob Tour app and host of one of my favorite podcasts, the Gangland Wire podcast. We got Gary Jenkins. Welcome to the show, Gary. Well, great. It's it's good to be here, uh, bad guy. <laughs> I love your title, dude. <laughs> Say hello to the bad guy. <laughs> so I appreciate you taking time to come on today. And like I said, so you've actually gone on to law school, past the bar, the Missouri right. bar. But if you could just give us a little bit of background on uh, your history in law enforcement, I believe you was from like 71 to 96. Right, you were in Kansas right. City. I was, uh, uh, I came on the Kansas City Police Department in 1971. I worked, I worked at a factory job. I didn't go to college out of high school, and I went to a factory job. And it was a good factory job, building Ford, uh, Fords here in Kansas City. And, but uh, in five years, I started on the night shift putting on back motor mounts. And I, five years later, I'm on the day shift putting on front motor mounts. And uh, <laughs> It was the most boring orange job I ever had, but it paid good and had good uh, insurance. And I had kids there. I had a kid by then. And, but, uh, you know, the police department put out a series of public service announcements trying to hire a bunch of guys, and it looked good to me. After working on that assembly line, it looked real good to me. So I, I tried it, and I went on, and, and I loved it. I'll tell you what, I, I loved it. I wanted to be a cowboy when I was a little kid growing up. Had We had horses, actually, on the farm, but, but I nice. wanted to be a real-deal cowboy, and that's about as close as you can come to being a cop, to being a cowboy. Uh, you know, instead of giving me a horse and a, a lever-action 30-30 and a Colt 45, they gave me a Plymouth Fury and a uh, Remington shotgun, pump shotgun, and a Smith & Wesson Model 5938. But I, you know, still got to go out and go after the bad guys. So it's the 1971 equi- equivalent right. of a cowboy. <laughs> so, you know, being on the police department, I was aggressive and I was active and, and I wanted to go where the action was. And I went to where the action was in patrol. And then I wanted to be a detective. And, and I was a, uh, what we call a property t- crimes detective in the, uh, uh, a st- what we called a station detective out of the, the station. And, you know, the big boys worked downtown and the real big boys worked in the intelligence unit. Now, once I found out about them, I thought that's where I I want to go you go after the mob and, and we have an organized crime family the Savella family here in Kansas City and it was it was really highly organized it was old school Sicilian mafia uh, uh you know with a boss an underboss a uh, uh consigliere uh, you know a couple of capos it wasn't very big you know Chicago I think has five or six crews and New York has five families so we weren't very big but we were we were organized and, and our boss was smart. So I, I ended up getting in the intelligence unit and and started having a little success there at, at that work and and ended up spending, I think, uh, 13 years there as a detective before I got promoted to sergeant. And, and, and it was lucky enough when I came in, the FBI in like 70, I came in there in 76. And during that next year, we had a mob war that started between the Savella family and an upstart group of young Turks called, they were the Spiro brothers. That's S-P-E-R-O, like Anthony Spiro from New York. I think he's a pretty famous guy. And and, Mm -hmm. and this was Nick, Carl, Joe, and, and Mike Spiro, and they had a mob war with the two Savella brothers, Carl and Nick, who was the boss, and Carl was kind of his, not his underboss, but his confidant, you might call him his consigliere, and and a guy that, that helped run stuff on the streets. Anyhow, they started that war, and we got assigned to that right away, working with the Bureau, but at the same time, the Bureau trying to find information about the Savellas wanting to kill the Spiros, they put in a bug and a little restaurant called the Villa Capri and and out of that bug they didn't hear any talk about murder plots they heard talk about Las Vegas they heard talk about a guy named Lefty they heard talk about a guy called Genius who was also they used to drop the name Glick in that and they heard the name Stardust and they heard 25 million dollars and are we in on that you know I told him to make a public announcement and get out boy whatever you got to do and so you know they knew they were talking about Vegas and and they immediately 
started contacting Vegas and, and other uh, FBI offices around the country to find out what was going on in Las Vegas because there was obviously something going on. And, and that I told him to make a public announcement and get out. And, and it was about a guy named called Genius who they thought was a guy named Glick. Well, Alan Glick owned the Argent Corporation, had a big Teamsters loan for $62 million and had bought actually four casinos and his flagship was the Stardust. And he had made an announcement he was selling out about that time. And, and the Bureau knew they were on to They were on to something real quick. And, and they needed a lot of help fast because they, uh, Tuffy left one night from the Villa Capri and said, I got to get to a phone. And those, uh, I'll tell your listeners something, those microphones in a bar are tough. As one of the agents said, you know, I listen to more Saturday Night Live music off the jukebox than I heard people talking. <laughs> I could imagine. Alive. He said, I heard Staying Alive so many times you couldn't believe it. Not Saturday Night Live, but Staying Alive. I heard that more times than you could shake a stick at because it was real popular at the time, <laughs> especially in the Italian community, because this was primarily a little neighborhood pizza mm-hmm. place and and bar that, that primarily Italians went to. And, and they loved that movie and, and they loved that song and that disco. I mean, yeah, you got John Travolta. I mean, yeah, oh, yeah. All of that. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, they had, uh, Tuffy says, I got to get to a phone. And we did, you know, they needed our help fast because they only had so many people to, to throw on a fast, you know, really uh, 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 hard uh, uh, full court press surveillance airplanes and and guys all over the place you know 25 cars on him and fine and when it didn't take very long you know to do that on a real surveillance where a guy you first get somebody just let you know he's leaving the house mm-hmm. in which direction he's headed but don't follow him and maybe even that day you don't do anything but then you know the next day that he leaves the house usually about the same time and then they pick him up in the direction he's going and then you get the plane on him and then the cars stay away, and, and and even the plane had to be careful because he was he was air surveillance conscious too. He would drive down into the airport into the flight pattern, and then come back out real fast and things like that. Oh, so that the because the <laughs> the helicopter air, air can't flights go can't there, go yeah. through there. Uh-huh. That makes sense. He would he would pull in uh, uh, overpasses in the freeway and just pull there, sit there for about. 15 minutes and then take off again real fast. He was real conscious, but we caught him going into this hotel in a, a kind of obscure and a industrial area next to a, an interstate I-435, the, um, not the Burlington end, the, uh, all of a sudden I've lost the name of it, but anyhow, it was something in, and, and he was going into that hotel and somebody jumped out and just walked into the lobby and there he was on the payphone, like, damn, we got it. We got it. And, and they locked down on that payphone uh, they put wires on it and they actually, they had checked the pin register on it. I mean, not the pin register, but the calls back and forth on it. They could do that. And they found a lot of calls back and forth from Las Vegas on it. And mm-hmm. and then they put a pin register on it. And then they caught him going in there a couple of more times. Then they put the wire, you know, put the uh, uh, wire on it, the recorder on it and, and caught him. And every time you'd see him go close, then you just back off. And they would listen on those phones. And as soon as they heard his voice, then they could start recording. Nice. And and uh, it was a treasure trove of information about what was going on in Las Vegas as far as uh, uh, skimming from the Tropicana, which was Kansas City skim, and then the skimming from the Stardust and the other three casinos, the uh, Fremont, the Hacienda, and the Frontier. They were all owned by this Alan Glick from this Teamsters loan he got, and he had to kick back via skim to Chicago, Milwaukee, Cleveland, and Kansas City, because those four families influenced that Teamsters loan, allowed him to get the Teamsters loan. Otherwise, he would have never got it. He was like 32 years old and had he had no uh, assets. He had no real track record by then, other than it gotten himself introduced to Frank Ballastrey up in Chicago and Milwaukee. He was a boss in Milwaukee. And, and Ballesteri saw something in him. He said, you know, he saw that this guy, we can make money off this guy. Mm-hmm. So let's help him. And, and they, you know, the four families went together and made sure he got the loan. He hired, he, he had Lefty hired out there already. He didn't even know it. He, he had Lefty Rosenthal, who was an outfit plant really in the Stardust. And he was then told to elevate Lefty to a position of power. And then Lefty 
brought in other people he trusted to get the skim started to, to, to be able to pull the money out before it was counted and get it started. The cash money started back to Chicago, who then distributed to uh, Milwaukee, Cleveland, and Kansas City. Same time on this phone, we got Kansas City's got their own stream of skim coming from the Tropicana, which had nothing to do with Chicago, Milwaukee, or Cleveland. Nick Savella, through this guy, Joe Augusto, had done it on his own. So it, it was it was an amazing time to listen to all that. So you said you started to have a question. Oh, well, I was gonna say, and, and Lefty, that was the character that was based uh, that Robert De Niro kind of loosely portrayed, right? Right. right. Casino. Uh, Sam Rustin, I think maybe his yeah. name. And, Ace, and, uh, I think they called Ace Rustin in, in the in the movie Casino. Yeah, and they really did a good job. I talk in my movie Gangland Wire. I interviewed a gal who worked directly under Lefty and Alan Glick. And, and she she talked, she described Lefty, he said he always looked like he what we call stepped out of a bandbox. He was always dressed impeccably. He he was always a gentleman to the women. He, he was, but on one hand, but on the other hand, he was a tyrant to many of the dealers and he and he was uh, 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 vicious and angry and threatening with Alan Glick because anytime Glick wouldn't let him do what he wanted to do, or threw up any kind of roadblocks to let Lefty have complete control of those four casinos. Uh, one time he, he, she was sitting there and he called Lefty and, and uh, he had told this gal to do, that he didn't want her to help Lefty with his show. He had that TV show that he broadcast out of the Stardust. And uh, he called Alan Glick in front of this lady and she said that, she heard Lefty say, you know, Alan, you let Lynn do whatever she wants to do. And if not, I'll break both your legs and then hung up. So he was that guy. He was that, that kind of a guy. I believe didn't at once uh, Nick Savella kind of had some choice words for Glick also, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, they uh, Glick told this story on, uh, in, uh, I have the transcript of when they, brought him back to testify for the skim trials. We had, you know, when all this came down and all the bosses of those four families were brought to Kansas city and, and stood trial for racketeering and uh, wire fraud. And I, I don't know what all the charges were. Uh, Glick came back and he testified and, you know, he never went into witness protection. He hired his own private security, he hired a lot of off duty San Diego policemen lived in a gated community and he was never touched. And there was never any efforts even that we know of, to try to stop him, but he flew back to Kansas City and he testified that one time Lefty Rosenthal told him, said, then they owned the, the, the casino company owned a private jet. He said, come on, we're flying back to Kansas City. You got to talk to this guy in Kansas City. He claims he didn't even know who he was. Flies back. <clears throat> Glick tells a story that they, they get off the plane, uh, a car meets them and they're taken to the, I believe it's a Marriott on the grounds of the hotel. There's one big hotel, Marriott, on the grounds of the airport. And takes him up to a room and and in a kind of an interesting coincidence, it's room's dark and there's one light on it over a chair. And just like a, 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 not a table lamp, but a stand-up lamp, living room kind of lamp, they moved over and it's just shining down into that chair and he's told to sit in that chair and then Nick Savella appears out of the darkness and starts questioning. But it was like an old uh, uh, 1950s cop interrogation. And, yeah. and he starts questioning. And first thing he said, he led with this. If it was up to me, you wouldn't leave this room alive. <laughs> and then starts telling about how he's, you know, he owes you, he, you owe me a million, million and a half. I don't remember. You owe me all this money. And Glick's claiming, well, I don't know how I'm going to repay you. And he said, I can't do that. And he says, you've got a man right here looking at, at Lefty. He said, he can get me paid. So what he was talking about was letting Lefty skim money from the casino because he was, at that time, Glick was still throwing up roadblocks in front of Lefty. And he said, you just let him do, you take care of that, do whatever he needs to do, and he'll take care of that. And so then... Uh, this guy Glick's talking for talking about how well you know I dealt with Frank Ballesteri and I remember uh, reading the transcript Nick Savella said something about all oh, fancy pants that we'll take care of him you don't have to worry about him and he looked at Tuffy DeLuna and, and Tuffy was sitting there and he, he said he said something to the effect of Tuffy uh, you need to go to Milwaukee 
So, you know, we never really documented anything after, you know, about that, any kind of a meeting there, but that was his, you know, that was his direct testimony. And, and of course he flew back and, and left, he got to do whatever he wanted to do. Yeah. So definitely there is a fairly high level of respect for, for a guy that's an integral part of the skim. They yeah, sure didn't, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> they didn't show him a lot of respect for sure. <laughs> Support for Say Hello to the Bad Guy podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who's the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels, and Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. So join over 4 million worldwide who trust Manscaped. With the exclusive offer for you, 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code BADGUY. Now, it's actually 4 million and 4, if you yeah. count us. Um, or 8 million and 8, if you're counting balls. <laughs> You got to think of some of those people that only have one, though. <laughs> what about people with extras? Evens each other out. Compensate. Hey. So, sometimes, Total you leave that, balls. sometimes you leave that middle nut alone. You got a little mohawk. It's cool. So, yeah, we got the performance package 4.0. So that comes with crop preserver. You get the crop reviver. Comes with a bag. The nose clipper. The underwear anti-chafing boxers. So it's a great kit. But even if... You know, maybe you don't need all that. They just have smaller stuff. They got lip balm. They got shampoo. They got body wash. They have traditional shavers. Like if you just wanted a, you know, a single razor shaver. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code badguy at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code badguy. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. So one of the things I want to ask, you, you cover all kinds of mob stuff. Yeah. But Nick Savella would kind of be your specialty coming from Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And uh, we covered Nick Savella. And, and my biggest thing with Nick Savella is, you know, you look at all these different, you know, historical mobsters that we know, you know, um, that have huge names. And, and there were some like Tony Accardo or Meyer Lansky that were pretty successful, but those yeah. aren't even huge names. And you look at a guy like Al Capone, whose total reign was, you know, less than a decade, you know, ridden with viol- riddle with violence. Yeah. And then you look at Nick Svella. He was a boss for decades. You know, he was real big with the Teamsters Union. He was at the Appalachian meeting. Um, he was integral in, you know, the Las Vegas uh, mob scheme that we know. How is it that this guy that was such a, such a successful long-term gangster that had his hands in so many things is such an unknown compared to some of these other gangsters who I guess it, I, I hate to use the term resume when we're talking about mobsters because it seems a little bit weird, but who seem to have significantly less on a resume are household names. In the meantime, majority of people have never heard of Nick Savella. Yeah, well, lot, that's a great question. <laughs> a lot of people have that question and I've wondered myself sometimes, but I, I, I actually, I know the answer. Nick Savella was old school. Nick Savella kept his mouth shut. Nick Savella did not go out in the joints at night. This is just on a personal level. He didn't go out in the joints at night. He didn't talk to anybody except real close, long time, old school friends out of the thirties and forties that were still around. He -hmm. didn't talk to anybody else or relatives and, and Tuffy DeLuna, his underboss, and he had a driver, a guy named Pete Dambarello. And he instilled that quietness in every one of the people that were the persons that were close to him. Nobody, they, uh, FBI is notorious for like just grabbing guys and just trying to talk to them. Well, the people that were close to Nick and Nick, they wouldn't even exchange pleasantries back with him. Uh, with, with the FBI agents that would just try to, you know, see them somewhere on the street or in a joint or, or down to city market where they were hanging out. Uh, one of the, uh, the agents that, that did that a lot, uh, uh, all of a sudden I've, I've lost his name, but he said he would take a big cigar and light it up and go down there and find Nick at the city market and start trying to talk to him. And Nick would start, you know, time to, you know, F off and several different expeditions. <laughs> and he said, he'd take a big drag of that cigar and just blow it in his face and walk off. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, he sputtered and sputtered on that, but he couldn't do anything. Right. Well, Hey, you could refuse to talk to him, but there's not much you could do to a federal agent when they blow smoke in your face. I yeah, guess that's yeah. one you got to just take on yeah, the chin. Yeah. yeah. He, he would just go, I, I, you know, that was an accident. You know, he made a complaint, <laughs> you know, on the professional standards, professional standards division came in. You know, I don't know what he's talking about that. I, I was love smoking a cigar. I don't really remember blowing in his face. 
you know, back then you got any video of that? No. <laughs> yeah. And, and I know you mentioned Tuffy DeLuna, but also like his brother Court, he was also pretty close with, right? Right. They're real close. They talked yeah. all the time and we got all kinds of conversations with them. And then at some point, his uh, nephew, Cork's uh, son, got involved also, correct? Yeah, right. Uh, uh, Tony Wright. He he was in jail on another charge. It got a, a gambling charge, I believe. Uh, they had a big book here in Kansas City. And he was uh, he was in jail on another charge during the whole skimming investigation. Otherwise, he'd have been in on it, too. Okay. And he took over after they... They both got went to jail. Then he really took over the family, but he died shortly thereafter. And he also caught another case for a what they call a gray market pharmaceutical drug mm. operation that they had going. They, he he had a deal. You could buy at a huge government discount drugs if they were going to a nursing home. So he phoned up some nursing homes and then ordered drugs. Any pharmaceutical you would use in a nursing home, he'd order them up. But they didn't go to a nursing home. They went to a warehouse, and then the warehouse would ship them to a contact he had in Nevada who owned several uh, privately, individually owned pharmacies. And then that guy would buy them and sell them out at retail. So he'd make that little extra, little extra bit right in the middle there between the normal retail and the big government discount. Let me ask you if this would be a good comparison. And it might not. It just kind of hit me as you were talking. So I'm from the Detroit area. And, uh, you know, the Detroit partnership of the Detroit mob is also one that's kind of gone under the radar for long yeah. periods of time. And they also keep the pretty tight in that they don't have a, a giant family. They keep their numbers down. Uh, they uh, stay close as far as, you know, uh, working with family and, you know, co-marrying to kind of, you know, bring crews and families together. Do you think that uh, their approach to how they ran their organizations. Could you say that that was kind of similar between Detroit and Kansas City? Yeah, good comparison. Uh, like, for example, Tuffy Luna's sister was married to Tony Wright. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they all lived with the, except Tuffy did live a little farther away, but the driver and, and the, all the Savellas lived practically on the same block. Almost like a compound uh, in the yeah. suburban neighborhood. Even had a, a fence that joined all their houses and and so you couldn't see into the backyards of anybody's house and has swimming pool out in the middle. And uh, a guy I know who, when he was a kid uh, was the same age as Tony Ripe's kids. And, and they would uh, invite the neighborhood kids to go swim in their pool. That's awesome. Yeah. I know a lot of the Detroit uh, families had a similar situation over in gross point where, mm -hmm. you know, they would live all, you know, in the same street, same block, stuff like that. So yeah, they were, they were tight. Uh, they stayed to themselves. And that's another reason everybody kept their mouth shut. Nobody was talking out of school and nobody's ever come in from Kansas city family. Nobody's ever turned on anybody. We had one real low level, barely an associate guy that was privy to some of these murder conversations because they were trying to get him and his partner to do some murders for him. And they did one extortion for him, set a uh, stick of dynamite on a guy's car and blew it up. Then Cork would go around to a strip club owner and then Cork would go to him and say, you know, you're in trouble with some of these young guys. Said, I can handle that for you, you know, just, you know, let, give me about $10,000 and I'll handle that for you. That's a pretty common extortion that they did here in Kansas City. That brings up something really good that I wanted to touch on because I've heard that for a long time, the mob, or I don't know if it's the commission or whatever, decided, you know what, we're not going to do car bombs anymore. Yeah. But then when I look at Kansas City, and I think it was big, big in the Midwest in general, because I know it was big in Cleveland too. But when I look at Kansas City between, you know, in the Savellas versus the Sparrow brothers, I yeah. feel like there was a lot of car car bombs involved. There was, there was. Uh, you know, when you look at the river, the river key, there was a ton of there was a ton of explosions and different things going on. Explosives was a go-to tool in the Kansas City when it came to mob wars. Yeah, huh? it was. And, and, and really, let's deal with the, the Sabella Spiro War, which is different than the River Key you mentioned. And, and it was like, it's really hard. That River Key thing is really hard to explain. 
the the Savellas were just barely on the periphery of this problem in a entertainment district uh, between some one of his capos or or boss, underboss, not his underboss, but a, a guy that had a crew, a guy named Willie Camasano and his brother Joe Camasano. They had a problem with a bar owner down there, and, and that was a whole separate thing from the Savellas and the Spiro, and so that's where the main uh, group of bombs in cars particularly were but they see they had a guy well let me go back just a bit they got to the situation where the sparrows kansas city's a small town so people everybody knows each other so it's really hard to isolate any one of the sparrow brothers and and hurt them or kill them and then, you know, they wanted to kill them because the Spiral brothers also wanted to kill some of the Savellas because the Savellas had killed their oldest brother a few years before. And they also wanted to move in on their action. And, and so you can't, you can't get somebody to buddy up with somebody. They're not going to trust you unless they know you, your blood relative, or they known you for a long time. Uh, they're not, nobody's going to get close to anybody and say, Hey, let's go out for a drink. You know, let's go to the ball game. You know, Oh, this is my buddy's going to sit in the back seat. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. none of that's going to happen. They're now. not going to fall for that. No, they're too wary. So then the next thing they did, they, they did a, uh, they cowboyed it for what their first op- opportunity. They cowboyed it. As we say, they caught, they got a guy to set down all three Spiral brothers in a tavern. And it was a busy tavern. There was a lot of people in the tavern that night. And they were all ready to go. They had a work car ready and guns and masks and everything. And 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 the Bureau had, and knew this was coming, but they didn't know where. They knew something was coming. And, and they lost them. They had some beepers, uh, hound dogs or electronic trackers on their personal cars. And they weren't working right. And they lost them all. And this one day and, and nobody knew where anybody was. Well, they were hiding out. And that evening, they knew that this guy was going to try to set up the three Spiral brothers at this tavern. And, and he did. Somebody dropped a dime and, and they ran to their work car, grabbed their guns and put on their mask, drove to the back door. There's a parking lot in back, went to the back door and came in, burst in. And uh, when they went in, they could see two of the brothers sitting to their left at a table. And the other brother was standing at the bar up by a payphone. And he'd been on the payphone just a few minutes earlier because some of our intelligence guys had just driven by and saw him at the payphone. And they were driving on away to check another location and come back and kind of watch the Spiros a little bit. And because we weren't really, we weren't locked down on the Bureau. We didn't know the Bureau was really knew something was about to happen. If they'd have told us, Nick and, and Tommy Joe would have stayed there, but they didn't always tell us everything that was going on back then. And so the two intelligence guys drive on by. Same time, these three mob guys, probably Tuffy and Joe Ragusa, and, and I'm not sure who the third one was, mate Charlie Mortina, uh, burst in the back door and two of them spin off. They shoot at Joe and Mike sitting at the table. They kill Mike and wound Joe. And, and hold the rest of the bar, you know, at bay, make sure nobody, no off-duty cops get, want to be heroes in there or somebody else with a gun wants to be a hero. Tuffy, they claim, is a guy in a ski mask with a shotgun and Carl Spiro sees what's going on and he bolts out the front door. He, he's booking across big wide street, Admiral Boulevard out front and Tuffy runs to the front door and pops him with a shotgun with double lock buck, clear across the street like a four four lane street and, and pops him with a shotgun and puts him down and, and they run back in, get in their car and drive off. And then true mob fashion, they throw away the guns on the way and they drop the car about four or five blocks away and, and disappear for the rest of the evening. Even, you know, uh, you know, if DNA had been around, we'd have had him because they found a ski mask in that car. I always thought we ought to go back and get it, see if we still have that ski mask and evidence and then take to the, do a DNA thing with uh, with these three guys that were suspected. But apparently nobody's ever done that. And uh, nobody really cares because everybody's dead now. And, and so, you know, that was uh, that was the end of that. They were not going to ever be caught unawares in a bar again. And, and really, the war really heats up now when the mic's gone. Joe Spiro and Carl start making a bomb and they're going to use the kind of the first bomb that gets used in this kind of like first person to use a nuclear weapon, I guess, and somebody else uses one. 
So Joe and Carl, they get a bunch of, they get a case of dynamite from a guy stole it from a construction site down in Arkansas. And they make a bomb. And Joe has this little crew of non-Italians or what we call Peckerwoods in Kansas City who uh, are working with him. Well, one of them's an informant for a Kansas City police officer. Mm. So he's reporting that, you know, hey, they're talking about this. They want me to help them do that. But they're, they, they don't really bring him in on everything. And then one night, they, they, he comes down to this tavern. It's about a block from a tavern, the Villa Capri, where they put that bug where all the Sabellas hang out. And the Spiro's own a tavern, or a Spiro associate owns a tavern about a block away. So they go down there, and Joe takes this bomb he's made and puts it underneath Tuffy's car, which is parked out in front. And then, you know, they wait till he comes out, and they're standing out in the doorway of this other tavern. And when Tuffy comes out, they have a sending unit, which is from a, a model plane, one of those model planes that you, you fly and you got a joystick and all that. Uh-huh. They start, you know, hitting the button on that to send the electronic signal and it doesn't go off. Duffy just drives off, leaves the bomb in a paper sack, brown paper sack uh, sitting there. And they have to run up and grab the bomb, bring it back and go test it. And they realize their antenna wasn't long enough on the receiving unit. They then rent an apartment that looks right down onto the Villa Capri across the street, or I got a friend that's got an apartment. They get it. They're going to try this bomb again. Well, the informant is like, he's over his head now. He has to go out and help him test the bomb, scares him to death when they're trying to figure out what's, how to make this, uh, what they call a servo motor work, the, the motor that then moves something to make the connection with, to complete the circuit to set off the blasting cap. He's scared to death. He's calling his control guy. Uh, 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 what's his name? Johnson, J.D. Johnson. He's calling him like every 10 minutes, like, oh, God, you know, we got to get me out of this. And, and we're, you know, our commanders are freaking out, too, because these guys have this bomb. And, and we know it's in a stolen car and it's parked somewhere. We don't know exactly where. And then later that night, you know, they're saying we just got to go ahead and take them off because we can't let them murder Tuffy. We can't let them explode this bomb, but right. we got to find this bomb. So they find a stolen car. They don't still don't know exactly that the bomb's in that. Pull up next to it in a van, slip out underneath, put an electronic hound dog tracking unit on it, which sends out a signal. Well, this remote control detonated bomb turns out was in that car and, and ready to go. Now, if that signal had been uh, uh, had coincided with the signal that that bomb needed when they got up there with that tracker, it would have gone off. It didn't, you know. Thank <laughs> that, God. that would have been an ironic, uh, oh, ironic twist to the story. Know, oh my God, it would have been that story for the ages. There, I know the guy that did that. He kind of sardonically said, "Well, I didn't know that bomb was in there for sure." <laughs> and we didn't even they didn't think about that until after it was over. So they put the tracking unit on it. The informant gets picked up the next day. He goes down and Joe shows him the bomb. And he says, you know, we're going to do this tonight or tomorrow night. And if it if we can't catch him and put this bomb under him, we're just going to set it at the doorway of the, the, the uh, Villa Capri when they're all in there, set it off and be outside the shotguns and just start taking people out when they run out. So our, our informant is like, he's totally freaked now. And he called, and so is the upper management on the PD. So, but now we know the bombs in that car. So they had just start working up search warrants and, and we got three other co-conspirators and, and they search warrant for the car and for Joe Spiro's house and the other guy's houses in the barn, take everybody off and, and charge them with this whole plot to kill Tuffy. Tuffy refuses to cooperate in any of this. They'd even driven by and taken a shot at him with a deer rifle. And he wouldn't even acknowledge that that happened. And the guy interviewing him says, well, what's that hole down there? He said, oh, I don't know what that is. So that's, you know, they had a code, man. <laughs> well, and they stuck to it. And like you said, you know, nobody ever ended up talking. So right. it, it definitely, and, definitely and, worked. And then after that, then the Savellas started using bombs and, and they had a bomb maker that he put like, it was overkill. He put a, a Spiro associate. who <coughs> was a car dealer. He was parked out in front of his girlfriend's house and they put almost a case of dynamite with a mercury switch up underneath that car. And he came out and started backing off and there's this thing up underneath his car. And so he gets out and they look and he said, Oh man. So they call the police. And they come over, so it's like a bomb to me and call a bomb squad and ATF. And, 
And there was some wire that the guy, the bomb maker had not got connected quite right. Otherwise it would have blown up that car, that house, and probably a couple of adjoining houses is what the ATF agent told me. And then a few months after that, this Carl Spiro, he lives, he's moved out in the country by now. See, he's crippled and, and he has to have uh, uh, hand controls for his car. He's got this big old brown uh, late model Cadillac Eldorado with a, a, a disabled license plate. And he has hand controls and a wheelchair. I mean, he, I followed him on it all over the city. He'd like lean forward, pull that wheelchair out of the back seat put it out and set it up and laboriously get out and get in the wheelchair, and go into wherever he wanted to go in. And, and he was still conducting business. Uh, he was still selling drugs and, and buying and selling stolen property and, and any other, you know, criminal activity that he could make money at. And he bought this house out in the country and it was, it was on about 10 acres and you could see for miles. We even had wiretaps where, Tuffy, I mean, uh, uh, Nick and Court Savella talked about how it was impossible to get close to him out there. And they talked about, well, you need a high-powered rifle and a Willie's got a 30-odd six. And, and Nick said, well, our guys, they'd have to get out and they'd have to run and crawl. And, and I don't think we got any guys in good enough shape to do that. Well, Ragusa could maybe, but he's the only one. He's not going to do it by himself. And, and so they were struggling then getting him isolated again. So they, again, they have to go with the bomb and that, and, and he's got a, Carl's got a nephew staying there. So the guy come, the young guy comes out that morning early before Carl gets up and takes off for the city. And he just parked his car outside. I guess he thought he was protected out in the country, even at night. And the nephew goes back in. He said, you know, Uncle Carl, there's something funny underneath your car. And of course he knows, oh God. So he rolls out and looks and, and, and there was something funny up underneath his car. And there's also a wire coming out and attached to something taped to the side of the car on the side away from where he would get in it. He goes back in calls the, the local police. Uh, it would be the Clay County Sheriff's office. And they come out and they quickly realize this is a bomb and, you know, get everybody there. Nobody really is that close because they're all on these little five and 10 acre plots up there. They, a couple of houses that were kind of close and everybody out of Carl's house and take them down the street, ATF and the Kansas City Bomb Squad come up and they start taking it apart. And it's another, you know, tw- I think a, the guy told me it's 28 sticks of dynamite. I've got this all in my my documentary of Brothers Against Brothers. I even got pictures of that bomb and the dynamite in the car. And it had a mercury switch wired to it that it, it, this one would have worked, uh, that ATF agent friend of mine, Dave Nyman told me, he said, this one would have worked, but they were able to disarm it by t- uh, cutting that mercury switch loose away from the rest of the wire. A mercury switch is just a little glass ampule with two wires in one end of it. And it's got mercury in it. So mercury, as soon as it's disturbed, it'll roll down to the other end and it'll make the connection between the two wires and, and then set off the blasting cap. So that was, and so they started, that was the bombing, but they were always pretty controlled bombings. Uh, but had those bombs got off, they might've taken out some innocent people. And that's why the mob doesn't really like to do bombs because when they take out bystanders, they have collateral damage. Uh, law enforcement goes nuts. They pull out all the stops and the press and, and people that were normally maybe somebody who uh, knew something had been their friends may not be their friends anymore. Uh, and uh, so anyhow, they, they like to have some control over the bombs, but they got a little out of control on this one. And, and in the end, Carl Spiro had a used car lot and he had a little shack on it for his office. And, and uh, I know an agent or an undercover highway patrolman that was working uh, in and around there and selling him stolen property and getting drugs from him. And, and he said uh, he never saw him sell a car out of this car lot. There's about five cars on it. They never sold a car. But he rolls in one morning, uh, first thing, gets out, goes out in that lot. And somebody sitting up the street sees him go in and have a remote control detonator and set it off. And, and it was so much dynamite, but there wasn't anybody close around. He was the only one at the lot that it blew that shack clear apart, blew him up out of the roof and his wheelchair and dumped, deposited him down in the parking lot. You can see pictures of the the crinkled up wheelchair out in the parking lot. It was, it was a pretty good size bomb too. That was the last one we had other than his brother, Joe, 
uh, got killed. He had some dynamite stored and it went off and it killed him. He killed himself actually. Although right. But that was, that was his own stuff. That was like a mistake, right, right, like user right. error basically. Mm-hmm. What's crazy. So with, with the brother of the wheelchair, for one, that's a serious commitment yeah. to uh, being a gangster. Oh, it was, he was serious. He was, uh, and that's a serious commitment to still driving a Cadillac because you know, you could have <laughs> yeah. switched to a, a, a different vehicle and made it considerably easier, but that's really, a lot of effort really. to go in to stay in your Cadillac. So you kind of got to respect that a little. You do. He was kind of an egomaniac. His license plate was a personalized license plate with his name on it. Spiro S P E R O. I mean, he, what he, he'd do things like, we caught him trying to going to hit him again at this same tavern, the Virginian. We found out later that somebody made a call and said he's down there all by himself. Well, we were down there myself and about three other guys because we were locked down on Carl Sparrow. And by this point in time, we were locked down everywhere he went. We went. He pretty much knew we were back there. Unless he, if he didn't want to, then he'd give us a slip. But mostly we were back there outside. So he, he's, he's there and uh, a car starts driving around and driving around and, and then they leave. So we, you know, we set up like, what's that? Then they leave. So we kind of, you know, settle back in. We're probably got good gang back up where we can see the side street or something smoking and joking because it gets boring. And then all of a sudden that same car appears again. So we split up and we drive down around by there to get a little closer to see wh- who this is. And, and all of a sudden, that car it started following me. And I went a couple blocks and I turned right. It stayed behind me. It stayed behind me about three or four more blocks away from the tavern. And Carl Spurl was sitting there all by himself. He'd been sitting there for about three or four hours all by himself. So I think, and, and it was them. They pulled up next to me and then they saw who I was. They didn't really know me, but they knew I was, this was by then we're in primarily a black neighborhood and I'm this 30 something white guy in this, you know, kind of rental car looking car, you know, I just, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, I just had that look of being a cop and, and they were, they're really, really suspicious and they took on off and, and left, but they were going to try to hit him in that, in that joint again, but he was wanting them to try. He always carried a gun wherever he went down in that wheelchair. This state trooper that worked with uh, undercover on him later on, uh, well, actually during that time and later said he always had a, a piece hidden underneath in that wheelchair where he could get to it real quick. So he was wanting him to come in there. He would, he was looking for a shootout. He often said that he wished they'd gone ahead and killed him actually. And so he, he didn't mind. He, he joked saying, you know, if they blow me up, I won't know when I'm dead. Uh, so he was that, you know, he had this fatalistic attitude by then. Well, yeah, and it makes sense. You're, you're now in a wheelchair, killed uh, several of your brothers. You know, yeah. I could see where that would definitely put you in a mindset where you're kind of throw caution to the wind or kind yeah. of ready for whatever. And and like you said, uh, you did the whole documentary, Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Sparrow War. Definitely recommend checking that out. Uh, one more question I wanted to ask you before we let you go. So I had interviewed Elaine Smith on the yeah. show one time, who I know you've also interviewed. And one of the things she talked about how is, you know, growing up and in the neighborhood and stuff like that, these people, you always have this uh, real romanticized uh, version of, you know, gangsters. And then once she actually started working for the FBI and started working firsthand and getting to know these guys and listening to the tapes and seeing their interactions, she said, you know, there's always these romanticized versions. But in reality, she said she found most of them to be dull bullies for the most part. And uh, I just know, I know you've spent quite a bit of time in the intelligence unit, and I just kind of wanted to see what your opinion was on, you know, we romanticize these gangsters. Do you find, you know, that that's <laughs> definitely an overstatement or what was, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I would say uh, as a class, I don't know if you call them a class, but as, as a group uh, of people who are attracted to each other and that subculture i would call it it's a little culture within the greater like there's a culture of primarily uh people uh whose families came from italy in in every city there's kind of a little culture just like irishmen you know they all come out on saint pat's day for irishmen and and same way with italian people and and then within that there's this little subculture and and they know each other and they, they they like you know, their kids marry into each other's families because they know each other and their kids and their wives usually go to church and, and take part in school activities. And, and uh, 
you know, it, it's just kind of, they're all across the board. The, the smart ones, the good ones, like Nick Savella, he was pretty well read, I understand. And, and he was more quiet and, and he was not, uh, he didn't curse a lot, a little bit, but but he was not aggressive. Uh, he, he would pull the trigger on you or get somebody to, but but he was not a bully in that manner. Now, his brother, on the other hand, was not well-read, who was a street guy who went into the joints all the time, who, who was, I remember I was found court one night and, and he was, he was probably not even as old as I am now, but he, he was probably in the late sixties and he went in this joint and, and he had this group of young people that all seemed to know him, you know, from the hood and you know, knew his kids and grandkids and all that. And there was a young gal and he was dancing with her. And then they left, he followed her to an apartment, not too far away. And so he would, he, and, and Nick, you never even saw him out in the joints and, and Cork, he did things like uh, a bunch of newspaper or, uh, uh, reporters, with uh, photographers and a cameraman, camera crew were in the courthouse uh, lobby uh, uh, right outside the courtroom where he's going to have to go in and testify to a grand jury. And, and he got mad and started yelling at him and, and he took his penis out and, and, uh, and flashed him with it and shook that at him said, here, have some of this. And he see, he was that kind of guy. So, so, you know, those, those are kind of the two examples uh, like the Sparrow brothers. I've talked to people that knew them and, and they were real genial and funny and people on the streets liked them and, mm-hmm. and, and they were pretty decent businessmen and, and, you know, they knew how to make money. Uh, and, and, and then there, there's everything in between. So, you know, it's just, it, it, there's no one stamp on all of them. The better ones are like, you know, like Accardo, who you never really heard anything out of him and always had a really nice house and stayed away from everything. And then there's uh, Lombardo, who was more down on the streets or, or some of those guys that were more on the streets and never really got above the streets. I guess that makes sense. It's uh, for lack of a better comparison, when you see, you know, the Godfather, you have the leaders and then you have Luca Brasi. So you need different types for different work that you need done, I guess, sometimes. Yeah, really. Well, I appreciate you coming on, taking the time with us today. Why don't you go ahead and, you know, plug some of your, you know, okay. your, your sites, the yeah. your social medias. All right. If you're interested in more of my work, and, and it's not all about Kansas City, there's a lot about Kansas City. Uh, I have a YouTube channel, gang, and everything's Gangland Wire. I'll tell you what, folks, if, if you just go to Google and type in the words Gangland Wire and Gary Jenkins, or even probably Gangland Wire, Kansas City, or probably just Gangland Wire, you're going to find, start finding me. And I've got a website. I've got the podcast. It's on the audio podcast. It's on all the uh, uh, podcast apps, Gangland Wire, and, and my YouTube channel, Gangland Wire. And I've, I've got quite a few. I do Zoom interviews many times. And so I've got the video up and I put up I'll put up little snippets of wiretaps with captions on it so you can read them once in a while. And, and I'll make other little short videos and put up on my, uh, my video channel. Got a book, uh, 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 Leaving Vegas, how uh, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. And if you get the Kindle version, you can click on the transcripts I put in there and you can hear the actual audio in your Kindle version. And I've got, and on the other hand, I did this whole thing around the Civil War, and I did a documentary uh, about the Underground Railroad stories from the Western Frontier, and I did a couple of uh, historical fiction books on the Underground Railroad, uh, John Brown on the Last Train, and The Immortal Ten, The Rescue of Dr. John Doy. So so that's all my stuff, and I appreciate you having me on. Oh, I'm... I was really excited to have you. So I, I am a big fan and I just want to tell any of my listeners and I've had feedback from listeners. I've had listeners ask me to see if I could get you on and stuff like that. So <laughs> well, I know a lot of them already do, but anybody that's, you know, if you've listened to my show, you're into criminal history, you're, you're interested in mob related stuff, go check out all the Jer- Gary Jenkins stuff. Uh, you will love it. it. It's all, you know, it's all good. The documentaries are great. I'd recommend the brothers against brothers but you know any of your stuff that's my best one (laughs) yeah you you can't go wrong with any of them though and like you said you you are probably the go-to expert i think as far as anything kansas city obviously but you cover all different mob related stuff criminal related stuff so it's not just strictly kansas city so yeah you know i i even did a skyjacker i got the skyjacker that did 42 years in the penitentiary and got out 
and I got started talking to him. And I did a, a I think a three or four episode series with uh, Martin McNally, the uh, uh, skyjacker from 1972. <laughs> yeah, well, and I'd say a lot of years you go into so much depth. Um, so when I was looking to cover Nick Savella, I listened to some of your Nick Savellas, and I believe you had like a four part series yeah, on him. I yep. And I know there's a number of other, you know, kind of one offs, but yeah, yeah, there's a ton of information out there. Okay. So. Go check it out, guys. Uh, Gary, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, This is Say Hello to the Bad Guy. Thanks for coming, and thanks for listening. Yeah. Say hello to the bad guy. Bad guy. I come in last place. Smell that dope when I pass by. I let my money at a fast pace. Say hello to the bad guy. to be dad spent my birthdays in the trap we had to work with what we had she been working on a raise while trying to raise me like a man plus my daddy in the box and all my cousins in the cam and i don't need a hundred friends i just want a hundred bands a hundred jugs a hundred scams hey hey so i don't money grabbed a hundred hams so I don't money grabbed a bunch of And bands. I ain't wanna fall victim to that system or the pistols. Fuck a judge with a grudge. I'm blowing crud for my mental life. Ay. And I still keep it on me. Run into your big homie. First you meet your dead homie. Yeah. Say hello to the bad guy. Ay. The good guy come in last place. Smell that dope when I pass by. Ay. I like my money at a fast pace. And her ass fake And she in love with the bad guy But bad bitches never act right She act up into that bag fly Did a turn around at one night Say hello to the bad guy The good guy come in last place You smell that dope when I pass by I let my money at a fast pace Say hello to the bad guy I pass by I let my money at a fast pace